Okay, what we are doing this semester at RUF, believe it or not, is um, we are exploring what the Bible says about relationships. And really what we try to do for the past um, few weeks now is to try to create in you uh, a theological framework by which you can evaluate really anything, but for this semester specifically relationships. And so the, the framework that we're trying to create is, is uh, these three categories that are in place. Uh, the first category is creation, and then the fall, and then redemption. So remember we talked about creation, that God makes all things good, and how that relates to relationships, so that relationships are good. And then the fall into sin, which we discussed last week, is when uh, human beings decided to rebel against God, and all of our relationships uh, have been now fraught with uh, frustration, and anger and dissension. And tonight we're going to talk about that third category, which is redemption. In other words, how does God go about redeeming uh, the entire creation, but how does God go about redeeming our relationships specifically? And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So if you have a, uh, one of these little sheets, or if you have your Bible, I'd invite you to turn it to uh, Luke chapter 6. Now, as y'all are flipping there or referencing this, um, I'll just give you a heads up. This is, this is the sixth chapter out of the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the third uh, gospel writer in the New Testament. And we're going to look at these, these verses uh, starting in verse 27. So I'll read it, and then we'll pray and look at it together, if that's all right. All right, beginning in verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. But I tell you who hear me... Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, then what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is God's Word. If you would, uh, please pray with me as we, uh, before we consider this together. Okay? So let's pray. Father, in light of the, uh, all the technical uh, Miss mess ups tonight and everything that's going on. I pray that you would uh, give us focus. I pray that your uh, Holy Spirit would be our teacher, that um, uh, you would guide us into the ways of truth and to goodness and to beauty. Father, as we discuss what you have to say about this enormous topic of love, I pray that you would that you would teach us. And so, to that end, we would ask you to help, and we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, if you are familiar or if you listen to U2, you know that a few years ago, I guess, I don't know how long it's been. It's been a while, 10, 15 years now. They put out a live album called Rattle and Hum. And uh, right before they're getting ready to, to cover the Beatles song Helter Skelter, uh, you know, well, some of you may know, uh, this Beatles song uh, they wrote and recorded in the you know, like 1967 Helter Skelter. And um, this serial killer uh, named Charles Manson kind of high Hijacked that song and used it in a lot of associations with the mur- that, with murders that he was committing in the late 1960s. They would like write uh, the, some of the lyrics on the walls of their victims, and so really since then this song has been associated with like the Manson murders of the late 1960s. And Bono, right before he's getting to play this song on their live album, I don't know where they were performing, but he says this: "This song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles." We're stealing it back. And then they just kind of launch into it. It's freaking awesome. Have you heard this? You can, you can, you can look it up on YouTube. When I get to the bottom, I go. Okay. And, um, but it's amazing. He's like, Manson stole this song, and we are stealing it back tonight. <laughs> now, here's the reason I'm talking about this. is because I feel like in the same way... I'm trying to do the same thing tonight. I feel like uh, the culture at large has hijacked this idea of love from the Bible, and tonight I'm going to try to steal it back. So with that in mind, I want to look at three things tonight as I try to emulate Bono. I want to look at the hijacked definition of love, the biblical definition of love, and then flesh out some practical implications before we're done. So hijacked definition or hijack definition, biblical definition, practical implications. Hopefully that makes sense. So what is the um, hijacked definition of love? Well, you have learned more about this subject from the culture than you have from the Bible. And so as a result, everybody is relatively confused about it, I think. And so I feel like on this subject more than any other subject... I feel like I'm entering into the matrix trying to pull you out. Uh, Sufjan Stevens, in his uh, album that just came out, uh, the, the, the second song on that is called Too Much. And the whole premise behind the song is that there is too much writing on the subject of love. That's his point. It's just there's too much, and I think he's right. In the sense of... The amount with which the word love has been written about and sung about and they've made movies about and explored and discussed, it, it, has, it is so talked about that this idea has so saturated our vocabularies that the word has in, in some sense almost lost meaning altogether. And, and, and here's how I know that this is true. is because some people say that they love their cat. And people say that they love their wife. Same exact word, radically different meanings. Right? I mean, you say that you love espresso news, or you love los, or dos, depending on where you are in the debate. Um, And you say that, you know, you love Kanye, and you love... God. I mean, this is the same word applied to all these different things. And so here's what I think we mean when we say that word now. If, if I could sort of kind of make a conjecture and say this is what I think we mean, culturally speaking, when we use that word love. Here's, here's the definition. Love is when someone or something else makes me feel good right now in this particular situation. Love 
is when someone or something else makes me feel good right now in this particular situation. That's the definition I think we work with. And there's a few problems with that. The first problem is that if you notice that love is, is framed in terms of a feeling. Love is a feeling that we get. The problem with that is that feelings change. Feelings are constantly in flux. They are not stable. I mean, this is why uh, if a situation changes where I am no longer getting the warm fuzzies out of it, I say that I no longer love it. I don't love it anymore if it's not making me feel the feelings of love. And this is why we can have sort of these extreme swings back and forth, right? Where we say, you know, I love my phone. We love our phones, until they start functioning poorly. And then we hate our phones. <laughs> this is the same way with me. It's like, I got this amazing phone. I mean, I got a new phone this summer. It was amazing. I love it. And today it was screwing up on me. It's like, I hate this stupid thing. <laughs> we say the same thing with our, with our football teams, right? We can say that we love and hate our team in the same exact game. <laughs> it's like, they're going to do it. They're going to do it. Why are they doing this to me? <laughs> We love our teams and we hate our teams. We, we, we kind of have this fluctuating back and forth thing. And sadly, I think, this is why the divorce rate is so high in this country. I think it's because the operating premise of so many marriages is this, that I will go into it, and as long as, I am, as, long as you are making me feel good, I'm in. As long as, as, long as you are making me feel the feelings of love, then, then I'm game, I'm, I'm in, I'm committed. But... If, if that gets removed, if the situation changes where I'm, you're no longer making me feel good, then we say that we've fallen out of love with that person. They're not producing the same feelings. And I think that this is, this is, a, this is a big problem. Here's another problem with this definition. If you noticed, it just is only referencing us. How somebody makes me feel. It's about me. It's about relationships are basically set up to meet my needs and to meet my desires, which love basically under this context is emotion-fueled narcissism. That's all it is. It's emotion-fueled narcissism where I'm in this in order for you to give me an emotional rush. So, okay, put this back into our framework, our theological framework. Our fall into sin has really sort of turned us outside in. I mean, we were created and designed to be others-oriented, to be focused on loving and serving other people. But what the fall has done is it's kind of imploded us, where now all we are are self-oriented, self-obsessed, and concerned about ourselves. And therefore, every relationship now gets sort of filtered through that grid of how is this going to um, feel good for me. And so all I'm, trying to, all I'm trying to say with this first point is to basically say the, the operating definition that so many of us work with as we think about what love is has some big problems to it. In fact, the best way to kind of capture this idea is um, the song by the Avett Brothers, uh, Love Like the Movies. I think that they kind of see through this uh, issue perfectly. And so let me just read you a few lines. They say this. So you want to be in love like the movies, but in the movies they're not in love at all. (laughs) And with a twinkle in their eyes, they're just saying their lines. So we can't be in love like the movies. Now, in the movies, they make it look so perfect. And in the background, they're always playing the right song. And and in the ending, there's always a resolution. 
but real life is more than just two hours long. I mean, I think they nail it. I think they see through that we want this romanticized, Hollywoodized love thing, and it's just this glitzy, glammy thing that, that is not real. That's the hijacked definition. So, okay, what's the biblical definition, Matt? What is the biblical definition of love? Well, let's look at it. And I want to look at it basically under two headings. What is the mandate of love? And then what is the motive of love? Okay? Let's look at the the, the mandate of love. Look at verse 27 again. I'll read it. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus is commanding us to love. I mean, do you see how this passage makes zero sense if we think that love is a feeling? Where we think, I mean, how does this make any sense? Uh, fall in love with your enemies? Have your enemies produce this loving feeling in us? It doesn't make any sense. But then what Jesus does is he goes on to talk about real practical things that you can do lovingly for your enemies. And so look at it. He says, you can bless them. You can pray for them. Don't retaliate. Give them your shirt. I mean, this is talking about the, the actions of love. This is not talking about the feelings of love. In fact, I don't think that the Bible ever defines love as a feeling. It's always an action. It's always behavior. It's always the loving treatment of somebody. And so, if, I were to, if we were to do this, if I were to bring up a, a guy and a girl up here on the stage, and, you know, I'm not going to do this, don't worry, but if I were to bring you up and say, okay, you don't know each other, I want you to introduce yourselves to each other, okay, and I want you to do me a favor, I want you to love each other. Y'all would think, I can't do that. I don't know this person. I've never met. Maybe if we spent some time together, maybe we would be compatible and eventually we would kind of fall in love, maybe. But that's a, you know, a possibility. But you can't, you can't ask that. You can't demand it. But look, Jesus commands you, love your enemies. It's right there in verse 27. He is saying, love that person. And so if, if, you, were to un- if you were to bring these two people up here and, and they were to understand sort of the biblical definition of love, that is an action, then they could say, okay, I can do that. It will be really hard, but I will try to serve them and sort of put, put their needs above mine. And so you kind of put this together, and, and here's kind of the biblical definition of love uh, pieced together from this passage. So here it is. A passionate Commitment to put someone else first. That's what I think the biblical definition of love is. It's a passionate commitment to put somebody else first. That means that it always entails self-sacrifice. I mean, look at verse 32 through 36. I mean, this is what this is all about. It's saying loving other people costs you immensely. It's saying to, uh, to give yourself or your, your stuff to another person without any real guarantee that you'll get it back. This means when you love somebody, you may not actually benefit at all. And here's what this means. Love is not about your happiness. Love is not about your happiness. And we... Um, like to think it is, but happiness is a wonderful byproduct. It's a wonderful result, but it is not the thing that is driving the train. Your happiness is not what drives the train. It's your love for another person. Let me try to put some um, texture on this. Uh, Joe Novenson is a uh, Presbyterian pastor in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. He was actually the uh, RUF uh, uh, summer conference main speaker this past, this past May. 
Great guy, great speaker. And he told this story that when he uh, first got married, he was in his first year of marriage, just into his first few months of marriage. He was working at his factory, and, and he was what he was basically doing is he was taking these big metal sheets and he was feeding them into these rollers. And picture like the the big huge rollers that uh, like lay down asphalt. You've kind of probably seen them out on 321. Those big huge things. And he said there was probably about an 18-inch clearance between the top roller and the bottom roller. And his job was basically take these sheets of metal and feed it into this machine. And I don't know what it would do. It would do something. And, of course, he, um, in, in this particular instance, got reckless or careless. And as he was feeding it in, his hands got crunched into the two rollers, broke every one of his fingers, just completely gnarled up his hands, which, mean, which meant after that that he had you know, countless surgeries and his hands were essentially in, in casts and, and he was unable to use his hands, which meant he was entirely dependent upon his wife. They had been married, I don't know, six months, let's say. And she is having to feed him. She is having to assist him with the restroom. She is having to wipe him. And you think, in those moments, she was probably not thinking, this is what I envisioned when I was dreaming about my marriage. (laughs) She was not thinking, this is making me really happy. I'm experiencing this emotional rush of... Euphoria that Edward Cullen experiences, you know. (laughs) But what she was doing in that moment is she was modeling to her husband what love is, what real biblical love is. And And he saw her lay down her life to serve him when it wasn't pleasing for her. But that is the picture. And that is the mandate. That's what it looks like to love another human being, to be committed to their interests, to be committed to meeting their needs even when they are a burden, even when they hurt you, even when they misunderstand you, even when it's messy and gross. That's what love is. That's the call. That's the, that's the mandate. So now some of you are thinking, okay, how in the world am I going to do that? I don't, I'm not really interested in that. Where do I get the motive for that? Well, Jesus tells you where you get the motive to do this. Look again in verse 35 and 36. Jesus says, But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind and ungrateful. He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. You see what Jesus is doing? He is anchoring this mandate, this command for you to love other people in the same way that God the Father has loved you. In the same way that he has been kind and merciful to you when you were ungrateful and wicked. It is that same dynamic that Jesus is saying, that is what's going to motivate you. And some of you are going, okay, but how do I know, how does God love me? How does that make sense? How do I know that God loves me? Well, the Bible tells you. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible just flat out says, this is how God loves you. It says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this way. If you, if you ever want to know how does God demonstrate his love objectively and not just be this ethereal theological thing in the, the sky, how do we know objectively and historically that God loves us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the motive. While we were at our worst, God gave up everything for you. 
It wasn't while we were good and sort of he was doing something to kind of win, you know, get our attention because there's this business transaction in place. It's while we were at our worst, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He gave up his son in order to get us. And so what happens is the fall has turned us outside in and made us self-absorbed and self-oriented. But what redemption does, what the cross does, what the gospel does, is it begins to start to pull us outside of ourselves and free us up to actually love other people. It pulls us out of ourselves to be others-oriented again. That's how God redeems us. Okay, how though? Well, the gospel, which is sort of just a nutshell summary word of the whole story of who Jesus is and what he has done, when that storyline becomes beautiful to you and it captures your heart, you inevitably want to participate in it. All good stories do this, you realize. Every good story that has captured your heart, you've wanted to participate in. This is why for some of you, when you finished Harry Potter, you pulled out pencils or sticks and were like pointing them at people and saying, Avada Kedavra, and just doing the killing curses on everybody. Or for some of you, when you were little, you turned on the you know, flashlight and used it as a lightsaber. Or... Why some of you in this room join other grown adults by dressing up in these characters and going to Barnes and Nobles and the movie theater and hanging out together with everybody in the suits. But this is why. It's, it's when a good story captures your attention and your imagination, you inevitably want to participate in it, right? You inevitably want in on the action. And as the story of Jesus, as the gospel becomes more and more real and beautiful to you, you will want to participate in it and go about loving other people in the same way that you have been loved. Now, some of you are going, I don't like this. This actually makes me sad and worried. Because if you're following the logic here, what you're doing is is you're tracing, you say, okay, does this mean that I will not experience romance? Does this mean that I will not experience the, the... Love, like I see on the movies and, and you know in the television, where, where there are the fireworks, where there are the, you know, we're gazing into each other's eyes and caught up in the moment, and um, where there, where we're just sort of living this happily ever after life. Is that not for me, Matt? Is that what you're saying? Because I know that this is what you want. For the uh, girls in the room, you want after 20 years of being married for your husband to look at you and say, you are more beautiful now than when I first met you. For the guys in the room, after, after you've been married 20 years, you want your wife to not be able to take her hands off of you, right? <laughs> this is what you want. And so the question is, will you experience the feelings of love? I hope so. I hope so. But all I'm saying right now is the feelings are a wonderful byproduct. It's a wonderful result of the action of love. But what we do is we take the feelings and we elevate them and we prioritize them and then we use them as the sole criteria to determine whether or not we can commit to somebody. Do they make me feel that? And if they don't... I'm not interested, and I'll be committed to them as long as they make me feel that way. And if they don't, then we'll break up. But what you have to see with that pattern, if that's, if that's your operating premise going into relationships, that I'm in this, I'm committed, as long as they make me feel this way, you are setting yourselves up 
for a very challenging and difficult marriage, which, if history is any guide, ends in divorce, sadly. That is the hijack definition, and that's the biblical definition. Now, we could end right here, but, but I want to flesh out some practical implications before we're done. So if you'll just indulge me, we're just going to look at four. But really, for, for, for the Christians in the room, and I don't assume that everybody in here is a Christian, but for those of you that do identify yourselves as believers, that believe in the gospel, what this should do, what the gospel should do, should really be like a, a, a bag of tea that's kind of being dropped in your life that, that colors and changes the flavor of everything in every way. Where now your life is really dominated by love. It is dominated by love of God and love of neighbor. It's not dominated anymore by getting ahead, by being the smartest, by being the richest, by being the most successful, by being whatever else. Your life is dominated by something else called love. And so we really could flesh out the implications of this for the rest of our life, of what it looks like to love God and love neighbor. But for tonight, uh, we're just going to look at four. And those are conflict, dating, breaking up, and preparation for marriage. We'll do it quickly. What's the implication for conflict? Because here you are, this is what, the fourth week of school now? And you've had enough time to experience some conflict, probably with your roommates. If not, maybe your boyfriend or your girlfriend, maybe your parents. But if you haven't yet, you will. And my question for you is, when you run into those moments, what is your instinct? What is your instinct? If you're anything like me, your instinct is this. That person has hurt me. That person annoys me. I don't want to be around them. I want to write them off and avoid them until our lease runs out. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) Or maybe you take the other approach, which is they have hurt me, they have bothered me, and so I'm just going to retaliate. I'm going to turn up the volume and be even more aggressive. And it's really this fight or flight thing. We either fight back and want them to feel the same, what we have felt, or we just sort of cower and say, I just kind of want to be done with this relationship and, and hope we don't have to talk to each other anymore. But the question is, what, what would it look like for you in that moment to love them? Because in that moment, they are functionally your enemy. And Jesus is calling you to love them. So what does it look like for you to love them? Well, I I think it means that you um, move towards them in love. And and that can mean a lot of different things, but it definitely does not mean cutting off relationships, especially the ones that you particularly want to avoid. Jesus is actually calling you into that relationship. And it can look a million different things, but I think in a general way, at least it looks like having a conversation where you approach them and, and, you, and you listen and you, and you kind of gently and patiently express your hurts and your frustrations and you are moving towards reconciliation and forgiveness. That's what it looks like to love your enemy. Because, again, this is all grounded in the gospel because this is what Jesus has done for you. When you were his enemy, he moved towards you out of love. Okay, that's the implication for conflict. What about for dating? Well, I think that the very nature of love has implications on when you say the word love. Because, you know, if you look at the intensity meter of a relationship, you know, a guy and a girl innocently flirting, okay, the the, the meter kind of moves up to, like, intensity level two. And let's say the guy asks a girl on a date. And because he's not a coward, he actually calls it a date, and they go out on a date. Okay, it just moved up a little bit. 
But let's say then uh, after a while they're dating or whatever, they experience the first kiss. Okay, now it's like at 40 or whatever. <laughs> but you know at some point there is a decisive point in the relationship where as soon as that first person drops the L-bomb <laughs> and tells the other person, I love you, this thing just got way more serious. The meter just jumped up to like 300. <laughs> I don't know how high the meter goes, but... <laughs> You get the point, right? Here's the point. That is an extremely loaded word. And so my challenge for you is basically this. Out of love for the other person, do not use that word flippantly. Because if you, you are actually being unloving to them, if you tell them, I love you, and you have no intentions of, of following through on your commitments to put their needs ahead of yours, if all you are doing is experiencing this emotional rush and tell them that you love them, and you have no intention of following through, you are being unloving. You are setting them up for extreme serious heartbreak. That is called unloving, not love. So all that to say is you just have to be careful with that word, I think. I mean, if you are in a relationship, if you're in a boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever sort of relationship, and you've told the other person that you love them and you have zero intention of following through with that, you need to repent and ask them for your forgiveness. Because what you've, what you've done in that situation is that you're lying to them. All you're telling them is you make me feel really good right now, but I have zero intentions of following through in the future. And that's unloving. That's not love. That's the implication for love, for dating. Third implication. What about for breaking up? Well, the implication, the, the, the call to love and the motive of love even extends into the arena of breaking up with each other, believe it or not. It's not like breaking up goes offline in Jesus' opinion. You can kind of, it's okay to be unloving now. No, this actually, the call to love extends even to this a- area. And so under the cultural definition, when you get broken up with, let's say you're the person that gets broken up with, uh, your knee-jerk reaction is when the person ends the relationship is to say, but I love you. you. You can't take away my connection to feeling good. You make me feel so good right now. You can't do this. And so what we begin to do is that we protest and we try to market ourselves to convince the other person not to do it. Nobody will love you as much as I will. Nobody will. And all we were doing in that moment is just pleading with them so that you can get reconnected to your feeling. It's not about actually loving them. It's about you loving yourself. I mean, this is exactly, sorry, Justin Bieber fans, what is going on in his song, Baby. (laughs) Have you read the lyrics to this song? This is what's going on. I guess he's broken up. He's lost his first love for the first time. And um, (laughs) let me read you what he says. He says, for you, I would have done whatever. And I just can't believe we ain't together. I want to play it cool, but I'm losing you. I'll buy you anything. I'll buy you any ring. Do you see how desperate and pathetic that is? I'll buy you whatever you want. Just please come back. But do you really want to be with someone who says yes to that? Yes, I'll come back if you buy me a yacht, if you buy me a ring. It's crazy. Bieber is not loving her in that moment. He's loving himself. And we do it too. And so what would it look like under the biblical definition of love 
If you're the one that's being broken up with, what would be an appropriate reaction? How about something like this? Uh, that actually really hurts, and I hate that, but you know, out of love for you, you know, if, if I love you in this moment, I want to put your interests ahead of mine. And if your interests are you want to pursue other relationships, I will free you up to do that, guilt-free. To actually be for them, to be for them while they're hurting you. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? It's crazy. To say, I'm putting your interests ahead of mine, and if your interests are to do other things, I'm not going to protest, I'm not going to market myself, I'm going to free you up to do that out of love for you. But what if you're the break-up-er, the breaker-up-er, the one that's initiating the breakup? What does this mean for you? I mean, this means that the call of love extends to the way that you break up with your person. This means that you don't unload all of your frustration and anger with them about everything that, that they did wrong. This means that you don't leave them with all of this baggage of telling them every single thing that they are messed up, you know, every single way that they're messed up. And this doesn't mean that you just act cold and distant around them, hoping that they get the hint and then break up with you. I mean, all of these are are cowardly, self-protective ways of, of saving yourself and not loving the other person. But the call of love even moves into the way of how you break up with someone. And when you are actually broken up with, the call of love looks like you protecting the other person when all of your other friends want to throw the other person under the bus. You know, when all your friends gather around you, oh, she's such a jerk, I can't believe that she did that. Were you actually, instead of entering into that and throwing grenades at her, defend her? That's what love would look like in the arena of being broken up with and breaking up. Last one and we're done. What about preparation for marriage? How does love, what are the implications of this for for how you prepare for marriage? Well, uh, I know that everybody in this room basically has this list of likes and dislikes, right? You've got this You've got this list, probably some of you have it written out, others of you do not, of, of your non-negotiable traits that this person has to have. It's like your list of standards. You know, like they've got to be debt-free. They've got to be a certain size. They have got to be, they've got to have a certain work ethic. They've got to like bluegrass music, you know, whatever it is. They have to, you know, you know about this list. But what I want you to see, if you think about it, what this list does is just reveals the fact that we want somebody to perfectly meet all of our needs. We want to craft this person who is perfectly tailored to making me the most happy. And then we like to justify it by saying, well, I just don't want to settle. Now, I'm all for standards. I'm not saying just chuck the list and get together with whoever. But what I am saying is that at, at, you know, above this list of whatever's on it for you, probably the most important thing is, are they willing to love like this? Do they get the gospel in such a way where, 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 they, where I see that it is evident in their life that they are loving other people in the way that Jesus is talking about this? And furthermore, am I willing to love them like this? I'm not saying that you shouldn't have standards. I'm just saying that should probably be at the top. Now, for some of you who are in dating relationships and you say, okay, I know I'm not really committed to this in the long haul. I know I'm not interested in marrying you. 
I just enjoy making out with you five nights a week, you should probably break up. <laughs> out of love for the other person, break up with them. Because what you are doing is you are using them. You are saying, I- I'm not committed to this in the long run. I know I don't see any future with us. I'm just enjoying spending time with you right now. Why are you dating then? How does love move into how you think about how you are dating someone right now with reference to the future? Let me just wrap up with with saying this. This is just a recap of everything. The mandate of love is to be radically self-sacrificial to meet the needs of other people. That's the call of love. That's the mandate. And the motive, of course, is the gospel itself. It, It is for you to see and to believe that this is the way that God has related to you. That he has sacrificed everything, his own son, in order to get you to meet your needs, to give you life. That is the pattern. The gospel is the driving initiatory pattern. And then when you get that, when you begin to live in light of that by faith, here's what happens. You are freed up to love other people without needing something from them. You're just freed to love them. Why? How? Because you have everything that you need in Jesus. He has filled you up. And so I don't desperately need this from other people in the same way that I did before. That is how you get the power to do this. That is the motive. That is the mandate. And that really is the invitation for you tonight. Regardless of where you find yourself spiritually, the invitation is to fix your eyes on Jesus and him crucified. And once you see his love for you, then go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, it is a high calling, and it's terrifying and it's scary to think that you would be calling us to put other people ahead of ourselves. And we need your grace, and we need your empowering, enabling grace uh, to help us because we want our needs met. We want other people to lay down their lives for us. And Father, I I just pray um, that you would give us a heart that is, is swelling with gratitude for the way that you have loved us. And in light of that overflow, enable us to love others in the same way. Would you do that? We would be so gracious. We would be so grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.